complete the sentence for me. The more things change, the more they stay the same. It's a familiar, familiar proverbial statement, meaning despite outward appearance of all kinds of outward changes, deeper things really don't change all that much, if at all. In some ways, it's similar to what Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes when he said there's nothing new under the sun. And while there are likely a variety of ways this is seen in the world, there's one particular way I want us to think about today. It really, I guess it's three ways all wrapped up into one. Life, death, and eternity. For as long as people have lived, people have died. And people have then gone on into eternity. And for as long as the earth continues, people will live, people will die, and people will go on into eternity. The author of Hebrews reminds us it is appointed uh, for everyone to die, and after that comes the judgment. But what does that mean? I mean, what happens to those who die and go on into eternity? Now, God's Word is clear. There are two very real and very distinct eternities, I guess you could say. Everyone lives forever, but they live in one of two ways and one of two places. Not only is there a difference in the eternities then, the reality is decisions we make now determine what happens to us then. And there are certain principles about this eternity that are true now, and they were true in the past, and they'll be true as long as time goes on. Today I want us to look at some of these principles. So open your Bible to Revelation 14, page 956 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with Him 144,000 who had His name and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of a loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one was able to learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are celibate. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from mankind as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven with the eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another angel, a second one, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Then another angel, the third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on their forehead, he will also drink the wine of the wrath of God which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. 
And they have no rest day or night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandment of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit. So they may rest from their labors and their deeds follow them. Now I looked and behold, a white cloud. And sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man and a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one from the, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because our grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the cluster from the vines of the earth and threw them into the great winepress, the wrath of God. And the wine was the winepress was trampled outside the city and the blood came from outside the press up to a horse's bridle for a distance, 1600 stadia. The title of the message this morning is Permanent Principles About Eternal Existence. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and wonderful. You are glorious and good. And we rejoice today in who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. We rejoice today in the word that we have before us. Many today... Lord, long to know the future. They long to know what's going on. They long to know how things will end. But Lord, as your disciples, we we have the answer. We have your word. And sure, there may be things we don't fully understand at times, but we have your assurance and we have you speaking to us from these things. And oh God, how we rejoice to know in the end you win. In the end, in the end, we are going to be with you because of Jesus And what he has done for us on the cross. Father, today we look at pictures of eternity and things here. Father, we need these to take root in our heart. So that we will know them. We will believe them. And they will influence how we live in our lives. Father, if we look at this passage. We see what it means. There's really not any way to, to be neutral about it. I mean, if this is if this is true, not true, it doesn't matter. It's a neat story. We can go on with our lives. We can live ourselves watching Desperate Housewives and eating ice cream and just doing whatever we want to do. But if this is true, there's weight here. There's pressure on us. And we must take up our crosses. And we must follow you. And we must give our lives to Make your glory known among the nations, the nations here and the nations abroad. Today, Father, shake off any sense of Laodicean lukewarmness from our hearts. Today, let your word be a mirror that brings us face to face with our spiritual condition. This isn't the time to to look at others and think, oh boy, they should have been here to hear that. This is a time to say, what must I do? In light of what God has said. Let this press on us in all the ways it's supposed to. Let this convict us in all the ways it's supposed to. 
Let this change us in all the ways it's supposed to. Fill me with your spirit today and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. I don't want to be a hindrance in any way to what you once said and what you want done. Have your way, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now what we've been looking at for the last couple of chapters, Revelations 12 and 13, Revelation 12 and 13, has been pretty rough and almost somewhat depressing. Revelation 12 talks about spiritual warfare and the length of time it goes on and it ends with the dragon on the earth enraged going out to make war with those who keep the commandment of God and hold the testimony of Jesus Christ. Revelation 13, we see he wages this war through his Antichrist and through his false prophet who deceive the world, lead them astray, lead them to turn from the worship of the true God to the worship of the Antichrist. And they take his mark and they begin to worship him as God. But not all do. There are some disciples of Jesus in this time and they they don't conform. They don't bow the knee. They won't take the mark. and, And as such... They're hunted down and they're killed. So we end chapter 13 with with really an almost depressing image of eternity. Of what's going to happen in the future. The devil seems to, to win. The disciples seem to die and to suffer. And then we get to Revelation 14. And we learn that what appeared to be a great victory for Satan wasn't the end. God is still God. He is still the King over kings, the Lord over the lords, and the world is still in His hand. And He has something to say in response to what Satan has done. In this chapter, we see a picture of somewhat of the end. We see a picture of something now that affects the end. We we learn principles about eternal existence. There are three Principles in this chapter. Number one, the redeemed will be with Jesus. Verse one, I looked and behold, the lamb was standing on Mount Zion with one hundred and forty four thousand who had his name written, had his name on the good grief. It's going to be a long day who had his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. Now, this is clearly the 144,000 we first read about in Revelation chapter 7. The 144,000 as individuals isn't going to be the focus of what I'm talking about today. I think there is, while those are are real people, legitimate, literal people, I think there is a, a bigger picture, a principle here. And the principle is the redeemed... Are with Jesus, right? We we know these are redeemed because they have the Father's name on their foreheads. They have Jesus' name on their foreheads. And, and it says it in verse 3 that they were purchased from the earth. Now, it is my understanding of this passage. They are with Jesus in heaven. Right? It says they are on Mount Zion. And they are with Jesus. But we know from what we've just read, Jesus has yet to return. Jesus doesn't actually physically come back until later in the book of Revelation. Also, if you look at the rest of Revelation until we get to where Jesus, it talks about him coming back. It's basically either pictures in heaven or everything on the earth is really, really bad. Uh, And it does, it kind of stays really, really bad until the millennial reign of Jesus. And so by the time we get to that, I don't believe there are any disciples left on the earth when we get to the bowls of judgment, which we'll look at in a few weeks. So what this leads me to conclude is this is a 
a future vision. We've ended the earth in chapter 18 of chapter 13, verse 18 of chapter 13, with people taking the mark of the beast, and we've jumped way ahead to the end, and we're seeing the Lamb with His redeemed. They are in heaven, and they are with Him. Uh, the idea of seeing the redeemed with Jesus is an encouraging truth for us to know. Because no matter what happens on the earth between now and that day, that there's nothing the enemy can do to take us out of our Father's hand. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, Paul tells us in Romans 8. So, no matter what happens in the world right now, no matter what happens with politics and wars and rumors of wars and, and anything else that goes on, the redeemed in the end will be with Jesus. We can easily look at all that's going on in the world and be fearful. The world can be a fearful place right now. We listen to the talking heads on the TV and, and on social media and they have fearful things to say. But fear not, disciple of Jesus. Because when the end comes, we will be standing with Jesus. Our future is secure. Our souls are saved and they are held by the Lamb of God and we will stand with Him in the last day. Our lives are secure. The redeemed will be with Jesus. Now, something interesting about this is the description it gives us of these redeemed people. And we learn from this the description, a good description of those who are redeemed now. But these redeemed then have certain character qualities in their life that are true of those who are redeemed now. Right? So the first is the redeemed are devoted to Jesus. Right? It says that they have His name, the name of the Father, written on their foreheads. Uh, uh, this represents an absolute commitment and devotion to Jesus. They are set apart for Jesus. Right? Compare this with Revelation 13 and 16. Revelation 13 and 16, the, the false prophet causes all, small and great, rich and poor, free and slaves, to be given a mark on their right hands or wear on their foreheads as an act of devotion to the beast, as an act of worship to the beast. They take his mark on their foreheads. Not so with the redeemed. Rather than take the mark of the beast, they reject the appeal of the world. They reject the Antichrist call and his siren song. And instead, they devote themselves to Jesus and they take his mark on their head. We also see in verse 4, they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Now, if there is a, a better picture of being a disciple of Jesus than that of following the Lamb wherever He goes, I don't know what it is. In the Gospel accounts, when Jesus called disciples, what did He say to them? Follow Me. And what did those who were His disciples do? 
Immediately they dropped their nets and they followed him. Immediately they got up from the receipt of custom and they followed him. They followed him wherever he went. Following Jesus implies imitating Jesus, surrendering to Jesus, and being changed to be more and more like Jesus. They are devoted to Jesus despite the cost. And the cost we learned in Revelation 13, 7 was their lives. The Antichrist, the beast, made war with them on every continent, on every state, and every nation in the world. And when they would not take his mark, they were killed. They chose devotion to Jesus over conformity to the culture, despite the great cost it had for them. It first cost them the ability to buy or sell. It cost them financially. It, it cost them comfort, for they had to, to flee. I think the picture is that the saints of God, they don't just sit and wait on the beast to come kill him. Instead, they, they go and they share the gospel and they proclaim the good news of a Savior and they urge people to repent and believe. And then it cost them their very lives. But because of this devotion to Jesus, they are on Mount Zion. And they are with the Lamb. Those who took the mark of the beast, we'll see later, are facing the judgment of God. But not so disciples of Jesus. In losing their lives for Jesus, they have gained eternity with Jesus. And this is all very reminiscent of what Jesus has said. If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, this is the one who will save it. For what good? Does it do a person if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? In one way or another, we will all face this same choice pretty much every day of our lives. It probably won't be as dramatic for us as take the mark of the beast on our foreheads or our hand or take the mark of Jesus upon our forehead. But every day we're going to have to decide what we're going to do with our lives. We're going to have to decide, am I going to lose my life by denying myself, taking up my cross and following Jesus? Or am I going to save my life by doing what I want to do? Every day we'll be given the choice to live selfish, self-centered lives for ourselves or selfless serving lives for Christ. And in the process of that choice, we are choosing to save our lives for eternity and lose our or lose our lives for lose our lives now and save our souls in eternity or save our lives now and lose our souls in eternity. Those are the only two options. I mean there is no third choice. When the opportunity to conform or compromise or be selfish and self-centered and live like the world presents itself, there is that choice or there is deny yourself and follow Jesus and there is nothing else. The redeemed. The redeemed. The redeemed are devoted 
to Jesus. We choose to lose our lives and save our souls. Now, it's not as immediate for us as it was for them. But it's no less real. And the consequences are exactly the same. Those who are with Jesus here are devoted to Jesus here. Those who are with Jesus on Mount Zion are devoted to Jesus in Gaiman and Goodwill and Texhoma and to the ends of the earth. Secondly, the, the redeemed rejoice in Jesus. It talks about they hear the voice from heaven, the sound of many waters, the sound of a loud thunder. The voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures, before the elders, and no one was able to learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. They rejoice. Now, I think this is an important picture because of how they got there. Right? How did they get to this point? They died, it seems, badly. They didn't live their best life now, go to sleep, and gradually drift off to heaven. They chose Jesus, and it was difficult, and it was hard, and everyone turned against them, and they were hounded, and they were chased, and they were caught, and they were given a choice, and they were beheaded. But in heaven, they're not sad. In heaven, they're not saying, Jesus, you betrayed me. In heaven, they're not saying, Jesus, you let me down. Why, Jesus, why? No, in heaven, they're rejoicing in the Lamb. In heaven, they're rejoicing in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for them. Choosing Jesus now isn't going to necessarily lead to our best life now. It will be costly. I mean, even in America where it is largely accepted to be a disciple of Jesus, our relationship with Him, our devotion to Him is costly in some ways. It costs us things we can't do. It costs us relationships we can't have. It, it costs us ways we can't act. What is our relationship with Jesus costing us? It should be something. But that's not the point. That's a rabbit trail. No matter what it costs us, it will be worth it. Not one person who lives their life for Jesus now will stand with Jesus on Mount Zion and think, my life was shortchanged. I never did get that great big house. I never did get this ease in life. My person never did get healed. Things never did improve in my marriage. Things were always hard up until the point where I died. And we will still rejoice in Jesus. We should rejoice in Jesus now. This isn't to say life isn't going to be hard. Gosh, it's going to be. Sometimes it will come as a direct result of our discipleship and our following of Jesus. But sometimes it's just going to come because life's hard. Life is just hard. But if we know in whom we have believed, and we know who He is and what He's done, then even in the midst of great difficulties and deep valleys, 
and even great confusion about what's going on, we should have a reason to rejoice. And our reason to rejoice is Jesus. Our zeal for the Lord, our love for the Lord should lead us to be excited and worship Him and rejoice in Him no matter what's going on. And then thirdly, the redeemed live in holiness before Jesus. It says in verse 4 and 5 that they, they've not defiled themselves with women. They're celibate. Um, they, there's no lie found in their mouths. They are blameless. All of this testifies to the kind of holy life they lived. They, they lived to a level of holiness Jesus expected of them. Jesus demanded of them. Jesus wanted them to live. They, they gave themselves to Him so completely. They set themselves apart from everything else. And they were holiness unto the Lord. The holiness isn't something we is talked about like in modern, particularly American Christianity. Because holiness is hard. We want your best life now. We want every day is Friday. We want 12 steps to fix this. Books on holiness largely go unwritten and unsold if they are written. The reality is we need to know more about holiness than we need to know about how to have our best life now. So look at what holiness, what the Bible tells about holiness. We're to pursue peace with all people, but we're also to pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, holiness means more than moral purity. Holiness, the theme running throughout God's word on holiness carries with it the idea of to cut or to be separate. Right? When we say God is holy, we're saying more than God is morally pure. We're saying God is different than us. But God is not a human, but with a whole lot of really good power. Right? He, he's not like us. He is something altogether different, a cut apart. And when we are to be holy, we are to... To be apart, to be separate, to be distinct, to be different from all that is unclean, all that is sinful, all that is righteous and pure. And we are to live for the Lord in this way. All throughout the New Testament, we're given teaching about the importance of practical, everyday holiness, which is important because. Salvation isn't based upon our being holy. We don't make ourselves holy and we're saved. We, we're saved when we repent of our sins. We believe in Jesus Christ. And God declares us to be not guilty. But the same God who declares us to be not guilty through faith demands that we be holy as He is holy. Expects that we would be sanctified. We would be continually progressing in holiness. Right. So the day we were saved, if you're like me, you weren't very holy at all. And when you prayed at the altar, you didn't get up and you were just overly holy at that point. There was still a lot of junk in your life that needed to come out. But now years later, are you more separate, more distinct, more holy than you were then? Different, you ought to be. You, you ought to be, and if you're not, you ought to worry about it. 
It ought to, to cause you fear and consternation if you are the same as you've always been. If repenting and believing in Jesus doesn't change your life, how on earth can you be sure you've repented and believed in Jesus? It causes us to, to be holy, to separate ourselves. How important is holiness? Well, without it, no one will see the Lord. Right? So someone who says they repent of their sins and says they believe in Jesus, but continue to live an impure and, and an unholy life, the reality is they won't be here. They will not be with the Lamb on Mount Zion in this day. Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Not because we're saved through holiness. Because holiness is a fruit of redemption. But all of this that they've done, right? Their, their devotion, their rejoicing, and their holiness, it flows out of the fact they have been purchased from all the earth. It flows out of the fact that they have been purchased from mankind as, as the first fruits of God and to the Lamb. Right? That's the picture. It's not do more. Be more devoted. Sing more loudly. Be more holy. That's not the point. The point is be redeemed. And if you're redeemed, you'll long for these things. The person who has been born again wants to be devoted to Jesus. The person who has been born again does rejoice in Jesus. The person who has been born again does strive for holiness and wants it in their lives. There's a lack of desire for these things in your life. Ask yourself, am I truly born again? Because those who have been purchased by the Lamb, they love the Lamb who purchased them. They devote themselves to the Lamb who died for them. And they separate themselves for the sake of the Lamb who has kept them. The desire for devotion, the desire to rejoice in Jesus and to live holy, it comes because of the radical change made in our lives at redemption. Secondly, the redeemed will be with Jesus. Second principle about eternal existence. Everyone responds to the gospel. One of the great myths of our day, I don't know if it's our day, it's in our day. I don't think we invented it. One of the great myths that we see in our time is what I've called the myth of neutrality. The myth of neutrality is I can be neutral where Jesus is concerned. I can be neutral where the gospel is concerned. I can even be neutral about the call of the gospel on my life to save me. Those who believe the myth of neutrality would not say they are hostile to the gospel. And they haven't rejected the gospel. They wouldn't say, they've re no, no, I've not rejected Jesus. I've just not chosen Jesus. But the reality is, there is no way to be neutral toward Jesus. There is no way to be neutral toward His Word, toward the gospel, toward the call of the gospel. Jesus, not me, Jesus said, those who are not for me are what? Against me. If we are not actively for Jesus, according to Jesus, we are against him. There is no middle ground. 
So what we learn is everyone responds to the gospel every time they hear it. We see this in this passage. In verse 6, there's an angel flying through the heavens with the eternal gospel to preach on the earth to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And as a part of the gospel proclamation, they're called to, to fear God, to give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment is at hand. They're to worship the God who made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all the springs of water. It's interesting because, one, this is going out through all the earth, every nation, tribe, language, and people. So this is going out to all the earth. But right behind it is a warning. A warning about Babylon falling and the judgment to come. And then after that is a warning about worshiping the beast and receiving his mark. And I think that the picture to me is the, the gospel is going forth. And as the gospel is going forth, calling on people to worship God, to fear him and to give him glory. The beast and the false prophet are preaching a false gospel. There's no need to. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. The beast is promising prosperity. The beast is promising pleasure. The beast is promising ease in life. You don't have to have a hard life. You can just follow me. You don't have to believe this gospel of fearing God. Why fear God? Just love the beast. And as these two competing gospels go out, choices are made. In our day, the gospel goes out. It's going out all over the world today. It goes out tomorrow. The gospel is proclaimed every day somewhere. But behind the gospel comes a competing message. You don't have to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. Just be a good person. You don't have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus. Just enjoy life. You don't have to deny yourself. You're number one. Live for number one. You're worth it. And as these messages go out, people choose. Some reject the gospel unto damnation. Look at verse 8. The, the angel comes and he cries out about Babylon. This, to me, I think this is a warning. This angel is, is called as one saying, fear God and give him glory. And the other is saying, Babylon is going to fall. She is going to, to face the fierce wrath of God. Don't listen to this competing message. Reject it. The third angel is saying, the beast is fake. Don't take his image. Don't take his mark. Don't worship him. But some do. And I'm sure they justified in one way or another. They find lies to tell themselves. I mean, we saw they can't buy or sell if they don't take the mark. I have a family to provide for. What, what do I do? Or they might say, well, I'm not saying no to Jesus. I'm just saying yes to this as well. 
Or they might be saying, well, I'm going to try this for a while. If it doesn't work out, I'll, I'll come back to Jesus. Or they might be saying, well, there's plenty of time to, to turn back around if this doesn't go well. On and on it goes. But they were wrong. All those things they told themselves were lies. And as they embrace the false gospel of the, the beast, they will drink the wine of the wrath of God mixed full strength. I'll talk about that in a minute. In the cup of his anger. And they will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will ascend forever and ever. And I'll have no rest, day or night, those who worship the beast in his image and who receives the mark of his name. The competing gospel goes out under all kinds of different names and ideas and thoughts and ideologies. And this is the future of every single person who embraces it. Every single person who rejects the real gospel of Jesus Christ and embraces the false gospel of the world and the spirit of the Antichrist, this is their future. Make no mistake, good moral people do not go to heaven. Kind people do not go to heaven. Religious people do not go to heaven. Religious, uh, spiritual people do not go to heaven. Good spouses, caring parents, good workers... Faithful community members do not go to heaven. Church members do not go to heaven. People who have been baptized do not go to heaven. Do you know who goes to heaven? Those who have embraced the true gospel. Those who have repented of their sins and believed in Jesus Christ. And they are the only ones. Everyone else who hears the gospel as it goes forth and receives the competing message instead. This is their future. And there are many in our day, in our community, who have embraced this false message and they have rejected the gospel unto damnation. But some receive the gospel unto salvation. Verse 12, here's the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandment of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit. They may rest from their labors and their good deeds. Follow them. Verse 12, we're called to have perseverance. To keep the commandment of God and faith in Jesus. I think this is again meant to contrast between what happened in chapter 13. You receive the gospel. Well, in this day, you receive the gospel. Great. Now there's trouble for it. There's the great world leader pursuing you to destroy you. What do you do? You persevere in your faith in Jesus. You persevere keeping the commandments of Jesus despite the cost. And it's the same for us today. Although, again, not as immediate, not as probably significant uh, as it is with them. But when we receive Christ, when we embrace the gospel, we are called to a life of persevering. Keeping the commandments and our faith in Jesus. And in order to do this, we have to have delayed gratification. Right? Delayed gratification is when you 
put off something enjoyable now for the sake of something better later on. Life as a disciple of Jesus is all about delayed gratification. Those who rejected the gospel and embraced the message of the beast, they went for immediate gratification. Immediately my life is easier. Immediately things become better. Immediately things are great and I have peace and pleasure and prosperity. But later, I have damnation. The disciple of Jesus, on the other hand, immediately they have hardship. Immediately they have difficulty. Immediately life is far more complicated than it was before. But later, they are with the Lamb on Mount Zion. Here's something as I've studied through this the last couple of weeks, I've realized the vast majority of people we know and love, I mean, I'm not even talking people India and far off countries and Muslim places, people in Gaiman we know, family members we have, people all around us, they are perfectly willing to sell their souls for easy something pleasurable now. They are very willing to sell their souls for what the Spirit of the Antichrist offers them at this moment. And if we're going to be faithful as disciples of Jesus, we cannot do that. We, we must persevere. The author of Hebrews writes to them and says, Remember, former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through insults and distress, partly by becoming companions with those who were so treated, you showed sympathy to those who were prisoners, accepted joyfully the, the seizing of your property. And here's why. Knowing you have for yourselves a better and lasting possession. That is delayed gratification. They suffered now for what they would receive later. And what he calls on them to do is to persevere. Don't throw it away now. It's, things were hard and they've gotten hard and they've stayed hard. But you need endurance. So after you've done the will of God, you can receive what was promised. The, the live for the moment. The live for now. Do what makes you happy in this moment. YOLO or whatever. That is most definitely the path to hell. The lack of Willingness to put off now so we can receive better later is destroying souls, thousands, millions, hundreds we know on our own. Disciples of Jesus, we must have delayed gratification. Life with Jesus now may well be difficult and it may well end badly. Listen. Life as a follower of Jesus ends badly for people every day in other parts of the world. Disciples of Jesus in Afghanistan right now are having a miserable, fear-filled life, assuming they've not been captured and tortured and martyred already. And it's not just Afghanistan. It is place after place. Here in America, in the West, we have been so protected. We think difficulties is related to not being faithful. That is not true. The day will come 
and is nigh at our door. When being faithful, we'll guarantee difficulties in our service and in our lives. Faithfulness to Jesus will make our lives difficult. And in that moment, we will have to choose immediate gratification, ultimate damnation, delayed gratification, ultimate salvation. I think the point of verse 13, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. They rest from their labors and their deeds follow them. Just a picture of it's a worthwhile decision. Again, what we receive then is greater than what we give up now. It, it's similar to what Paul says in Romans 8.18, that the suffering of this life cannot be compared to the glory of the next life. I don't know what we may have to give up. Who knows? Make no mistake, what we receive from Jesus ultimately is better than anything we lose right now, no matter what it is we lose. Now back to the, 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 the bigger point. Everyone always responds to the gospel. No one is neutral. People receive it or reject it every time. When you share the gospel with someone this week, those people you talk to about Jesus and about salvation, they will choose. And they will receive the gospel or they will reject the gospel. But it's not just them, it's, it's us. Today was what we've heard. We're going to receive or we're going to reject. As we read our Bibles for ourselves, God's going to speak and show us things and we're going to receive or we're going to reject. This is a living book. And it is empowered by a Holy Spirit who knows all things. And it always speaks and it always guides and it always convicts. And it always leads. And we always choose. We receive it or we reject it. Every single time. Some, praise the Lord, they receive the gospel unto salvation. The fact is, some reject it unto damnation. And then the final point, and I'll be quick, is God's judgment is inevitable and intense. We're not going to, verses 14 through 20, detail this reaping, and I'm not going to go into detail with it today. Um, Two weeks, not next week, next Sunday, but the Sunday after. I'm going to go in detail in this, preach a message. That I think will be the most controversial sermon I've ever preached. But I'm going to look at this in detail. But what now, what I want you to see is part of this and part of something else. Look at verse 10 again. It says, they will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed full strength in the cup of his anger. One of my commentaries said about the phrase in full strength that wine... Is full that wine with a meal would always be watered down, anywhere from one, one to one to three to one, one part wine to three parts water, and they would drink undiluted wine only when they wanted to get drunk, only when they wanted the full strength. The picture here is the judgment that falls is full strength. I think part of the picture is. The full strength of God's wrath has never fallen yet upon humanity. In the Old Testament, God's wrath fell multiple times upon them, but it was mixed with mercy. It was mixed with goodness. It was mixed with grace. 
Nothing we've seen in the Old Testament was the full strength of God's wrath poured out upon humanity. Nothing in the New Testament up to this point has been the full strength. Even what we've seen in Revelation hasn't been the full strength of God's wrath poured out upon humanity. Up to this point, it has been mixed with mercy. It has been mixed with grace. I mean, we have had all of these judgments, the bowls and the seals, and or not the bowls, the bowls are later. We've seen all these judgments. But there's still the gospel going forth, calling for people. But the day is going to come when the judgment will come full strength and there will be no mercy mixed in with it. There will be nothing but the fierceness and the purity of the wrath of God. The picture, verse 19, the angel swung his sickle into the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them the great winepress, the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and the blood came up out of the winepress to the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. It's about 180 miles. Of course, I don't know, how many of you ever pressed out wine in a wine press before? Probably none of us. Here's what it looks like. So you put the, the grapes in the big hole. And then people would stomp them and squeeze the juice out of them. And it would run off into vats and they would let it get leaven in it and it would become alcoholic. And then they would have the jugs that they would pull out. This is the picture we're given about God's wrath. I mean, that's the graphic picture of people essentially being squished under the wrath of God until their blood flows upon the earth, the height of a horse's belly for 180 miles. I think this refers to the bowls of judgment, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. But that's a horrifying picture. That is the full strength of God's wrath. And once it gets to that point, there is no mercy. There is no grace. There is just the fierceness and the fullness of the wrath of Almighty God. And if that doesn't make our hearts tremble a little bit, we are not paying attention. Because that judgment will fall on everyone who rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ. That judgment will fall on every person who embraces the false gospel of the the Antichrist, of good morals, of some other religion. Those who rebel against the rule and the reign of Jesus in their life will face this terrible wrath. It will happen. It is certain. This picture is is meant to be horrifying. It is. It, It ought to be. I think in a lot of ways it's meant to cause us to put our hands over our mouth, gasp and horror. Oh my gosh. That is the worst thing I've ever imagined. And it is what is coming for every single person who rejects Jesus and resists his rule for their lives. And the only way out is through faith in Jesus. Only Jesus can save people from that. So here's where it ought to horrify us, terrify us. One, if you've never personally repented of your sins and believed in Jesus, 
you ought to be horrified and terrified at the moment. This is real. This isn't some story of a ranting preacher trying to scare you to join his church and give him money. It's not. This is the truth from God's word about what he says will happen. He himself will do. This is what awaits you. If you choose to reject Jesus, if you persist in your rebellion and your rejection of him, this is what's there. And you ought to be terrified of that thought. But if you have repented of your sins and you have believed in Jesus. Dear brother or sister, you know people who have not. And this is what awaits them. And our hearts ought to be nearly broken over it. And, and we, 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 we are tempted to believe a competing gospel as well. We have believed the true gospel. But we don't want to believe this about our loved ones. And so we say, well, they're, they're good people. They're so kind. I, they, they made a decision at church once, but there's never been any devotion or holiness and we believe this not because it's true, but because it relieves the weight of this off of our hearts. Dear friend, that's a lie. We must not do that. God, help us not to deceive ourselves to relieve a weight and leave people damned. When we embrace this false gospel in our minds for the sake of others, we do not save them. Our conviction they're good people and will probably be okay does not save them. Only Jesus saves them. And all we do is soothe our consciences while we let them go happily to hell and the wrath of God. Dear God, forbid it from happening in our hearts. And in our lives. So this morning we're going to have a time to respond. And the response is one of two things. You need Jesus. Or you need to be crying out for someone who needs Jesus. I'm going to ask you to stand. You can come to the altars or you can pray where you are. The need this morning is for you to do business with Jesus as he has done business with you.